Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the not-at-all-frazzled Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Uh, yeah, my daughter's in town, and uh, it's been great, but also means that, like, yesterday I was up learning about the UN until, uh, like, midnight, and then I was like, oh, yeah, I've got a video to put out. I guess I'll be up late today. I'm a little, a little sleepy. It's good when your daughter can come teach you the finer points of of speaking to the United Nations. Uh, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. th- those those small things. What <laughs> one does? Yeah, she's she's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Definitely a, yeah. uh, a, a what do you call it? A, a case study, and uh, if you do a lot of effort, it can pay off. She's, we're lucky that way. Yeah. Well, for for me, it was not a lot of effort, but still paying off. I got to talk to a. Uh, a class. Oh yeah. Mr. C's RPG. He's a listener and I'm not going to give his name. I'll call him Mr. C. Mr. C's uh, RPG workshop students. I talked to them last week and it was really fun. We talked about role-playing games in general. We talked about world building and they were a great bunch of kids who, uh, hmm. who came up with some brilliant and insightful thoughts on both role-playing games and cool world building concepts. So uh, hmm. thank you. Uh, to Mr. C for the opportunity to to talk to your students. It was it was very fun. But there are also people listening to us. And sometimes these people have questions or comments. We're going to go through two of those today. First is from Jason Campbell via our Patreon. Uh, Jason says, I want to see what your take was on one aspect of the Cobalt Press's uh, playtest packet number four for Tales of the Valiant. Um, this was a monster playtest packet uh, in terms of not monster in terms of large. That was we got that from Wizards of the Ghost. Uh, this was the monsters were the topic. Yes. Uh, so Jason continues in the description of resistance and vulnerability. They say that resistance means you take 50 percent of the damage on a fail and vulnerability means you take double damage. OK. But it also says resistance gives you advantage on your saving throw roll and vulnerability gives you disadvantage. That seems like a major change. I haven't played it out yet, but doesn't that seem like double dipping? And so, Jason, this is a great question because I started really like thinking about this and even doing math about what sort of what sort of swing does that make if you both have. You know, if you have vulnerability and disadvantage on the save, what percentage chance does the does the you know doesn't give you to increase? And then I read the packet again very closely, and I did uh, read it before, but I didn't notice this, so I read it again. And what they're talking about is you have advantage or disadvantage on your saving throw if you have resistance or vulnerability to a condition, not to the damage. So, for example. There's a monster uh, called the uh, Crimson Jelly, which is an ooze. It is resistant to the grappled condition. So if it, if it was uh, resistant to cold, then it would just be the 50% reduction to damage, not the uh, disadvantage on saving throws. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's... Uh, that's what that part means. It's only if it's vulnerable or resistant to the condition does it get that uh, advantage or disadvantage on saving throws. But that in itself is odd because I was thinking, 
okay, so you are resistant to grappling, which would mean in this play test you have advantage against being grappled on saving throws, but grappling, at least in the five, normal 5e rules, it's not a saving throw against being grappled. It's a it's an ability check that you oppose generally with your athletics or acrobatics. So unless the the valiant playtest rules say that grappling is now a saving throw rather than uh rather than an ability check and a boast opposed ability check normally, then that doesn't make a lot of sense. But maybe in a previous playtest packet, they talked about that and I just didn't see it. Yeah, and it'd be, you know, would it just be for like the escape DC or something like that? That's the kind of stuff you have to iron out over time. And a lot right. of that I'm not worried about because I know like they will figure this out you know they'll clean this up down the road but it's that kind of thing that uh these sort of variant D rules that do use D as their core impose these special situations that then as a dm you've got to have this split brain you know like oh mm-hmm. well i'm using a level up 5e monster so i've got to keep this in mind and, oh, and i'm using the cold right. press monster so i gotta keep this in mind and now i'm <laughs> And that that gets that you know takes up a lot of brain space and 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 isn't for everyone and that's that's yeah that's tough because these companies want it to be widely adopted and that's that give and take. My brain already has partitions for first edition, second edition, third edition, fourth edition. Now there's a fifth edition partition, and now I have to make the different partitions for the different playtests coming out. Uh, there's not a lot of space up there. And left then your, your kids are going to. Your kids are going to run defrag when you're not looking, and then mm, it's all gone. Yeah. So thank you for that question, J- Jason. I hope I hope what I said was right, and I hope that helps. Uh, and the other question comment we had was from uh, the Mathemagician via the Dungeon uh, Mastering Dungeons Discord channel. I wonder what are the design considerations for applying stat blocks uh, for the polymorph spell. Local context, we had a session get gummed up this weekend because a PC wanted to get to a platform 100 feet in the air from which the enemy was lobbing fireballs. She wanted to polymorph herself into something that could A, fly, and B, have sufficient combat stats to harass a high-level enemy. This took considerable digging, even with D&D Beyond. Sure would have been nice to have a quick, I need these kind of stats for this spell, while also having the option to use it Uh, to neutralize an enemy, such as turning a land-based enemy into a helpless whale. And also, she had no idea what CR meant, because that was using DM-facing language in a player-facing book, which seems problematic. And my answer to this is, yes, all of the above (laughs) and more. Mm. Uh, it, It does slow things down. And that's only what a fifth level spell polymorph is. Is it fifth or sixth? I I lose track of these things because mm-hmm. first edition, second edition, right. third edition. Uh, so, yes, it, it would be nice to have a quick and simple solution. But if you give a quick and simple solution, then the people that don't want a quick and simple solution are upset that you've given them a solution that's too quick and too simple. And so the answer is to give multiple solutions which then cause friction, cause people to be confused, uh, because first edition, fourth edition, fifth edition, uh, and then one solution, two solutions, we're we're all over the place. Uh, so, but your point about the DM facing language in a player facing 
rule book is definitely well taken. And that's something that should be ironed out. Say if they're going to revise an edition, uh, they could maybe take a look at that. Yeah. And Math Magician brought this up in, in the context of uh, the feedback around the Druid play test, right? Which used these sort of standard mm -hmm. stat blocks for form, uh, in large part due to lots of players saying to wizards, gee, this is a pain to have to look all these things up and look, I end up optimizing into being the same creature anyway. And, and, but then other people will say, I love choosing forms, right? And, and, and I think that polymorph is enough of one spell that in general, I would say, hey, if you're a player choosing polymorph, this is what you're signing up for. And we're all signing up for the fact that you're probably going to open up a monster book and flip through. And, um, you know, and I have, might have ways I'd adjudicate the specific version. Like if really you're trying to fly and you have this, I might just put two stat blocks together and, and say, you know, this is what you are. Um, but but it, it's it's a specific spell. So I don't have a huge problem with it at the game level. And in that a spell that says look through all the monsters and choose what you want. Fine. You know, and, and, and you can have a table rule. Like you've got 10 minutes and tell me what you turn into. Um, but when it's a larger system, right, when it's a core thing your class does or, or something like that, that's where I think it's a little rough to, you know, you don't want the player of a druid saying, I'm going to shape change into something. Give me all the monsters that have the beast in it, all the books that have a beast in it, because uh, that's endless, right? And endless confusion. And yeah, and things like CR and stuff. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. And this is this is the hard part where we can all have our own separate beliefs about what's best and based on who we are, who we game with, if we have our home group that we're comfortable with, if we're game mastering for several different groups of new players, expert players. And what needs to happen is Wizards of the Coast needs to decide what they want. Make for the game. what they want, yeah. what they want for the game. Make that the baseline and then say in in a in the DMs guide or in a sidebar, if you want a more complex game, allow this to happen. Mm -hmm. Or if you make it complex, say if you want a simpler game, we suggest doing this. Uh because this this tool, this machine that we have in front of us right now is very complex. Mm -hmm. And some people love it complex and some people want it to be simpler. And the Wizards of the Coast, this is where the marketing people come in, right? This is where you do those surveys, not just to <laughs> not just to expert players to get their opinions, but go to people who don't even play D&D yeah. &D and say, if you were going to play D&D, &D, how complex would you want the game to be? And figure out based on metrics and based on potential income from those different groups and all of those things take into consideration what choice you make for the type of game you want you know i'd almost pay money uh i have a limited budget that's why i say almost but to see to <laughs> sit down some some you know wizards employees and have them watch a brand new set of players as they use um some of the pregens that have been giving out at adventures right um like in fact what was the there was a packet recently that had some some pregens in it um i think it was for the school program maybe and mm -hmm they don't reprint all of the spells. They just give you a couple. And so I'd love to have like, you know, staff watches this game careens to a halt as the wizard goes, Hey, I have all these spells. I don't know what they do. And then the cleric goes, yeah, I have a bunch of spells. I only know what one of them does. 
you know, and, and meanwhile, the fighter's just right. going off and whacking stuff without any problem whatsoever, right? And if it was running at third level, the, the druid would say, can you show me what, what I do here when I wild shape? You know, what, what are my options? And, and how a new DM would handle all of that, right? Like, Exactly. Right. <laughs> and, and and like you say, not only that, but have this be a brand new DM who has just picked up the rules for the first time yeah. and try to parse all of that. Yeah. And, and it's not 1973, right? We have all of the tools to solve this. We, we know how to fix all these problems if we can just kind of take the right steps, right? And, and if we want to solve these problems, right? Maybe that's not the problem, right? Maybe... You just want your super invested players, right? I get a little worried with the playtest packets when the feedback says things like, you know, oh, my off turn damage as a rogue has gone down because that means these are folks who are super smart, super well yep. aware of how D&D rules, as we've said in the past, uh, and not the casual player who couldn't care less whether they get an off turn sneak attack, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So... Great question, mathematician, and uh, you got the extended answer, but I hope uh, <laughs> that makes it clear where we stand, which is we have no idea where we stand. But to get to our big news and commentary section, we will start with the new Unearthed Arcana. Last week, we gave sort of the high-level view of what we thought of it, and I just want to maybe take one piece per week and just take a quick glance or, or a, a more in-depth glance into a smaller section. And one section that popped to mind was this new uh, weapon mastery properties part. So what is this? Well, first, let's first talk about a couple changes to regular weapon properties. So light weapons, they switched in the last packet to make them more like you. everyone gets to weapon fighting. Now they're switched back, so it's just uh, to allow a bonus action to make a quote-unquote offhand attack, as long as you have a light weapon in both hands, and you get no bonus, uh, no ability modifier added to that second attack. So you still get the roll the damage die, but you don't get that uh, if you use your bonus action to do it. And if you make a first attack with a light weapon in your original hand, yeah. Uh, and the throne property now allows you to draw a weapon to throw as part of that attack. It doesn't say, so it says weapons with the throne property. I'm trying to remember weapons mm -hmm. with the throne property uh, can be drawn as, as a free action, as no action. Uh, now it doesn't say if you throw it, it just says that they, they can be drawn. So I don't know if that means you must throw it in order to make that draw free or if you any weapon with the throne property can be drawn. If we're going to parse language, let's parse language. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so that's something that's now there in the throne uh, property for weapons. So if you're the dagger throwing type, you can now draw and throw as many as you have uh, actions in order to make that attack. Yeah. And then presumably use your free typical thing to then draw so that you have a dagger in your hand at the end of the round for any opportunity mm -hmm. attacks and so on. Yep. yep. So those were the smaller changes just to those two properties. Now let's dive into the weapon mastery properties. Whew. Every weapon will have a weapon mastery property. 
And if you have some sort of class or feat or some other element of your character that allows weapon mastery, you can then unlock that mastery property for the weapon that you are using. Hmm. What do you think of this in general? What do you think of this system? Um, so first thought is that when this was introduced at the D&D Summit, people were basically drooling. And which is really funny because this is a group that had just been really angry at Wizards. And Jeremy Crawford starts explaining this and everybody's just like, whoa, candy, give me. <laughs> so I couldn't help but watch everybody around me. Go, is this the same crowd? Um, so so it, it's candy, right? It is fun stuff. Uh, I think that it's very cool in that it can go towards some classes. And I'm really looking at just the fighter here, though it's wider than the fighter. But specifically where the fighter to liven up the fighter that can be a little static, though. And I've heard you say this before, like that's sort of the point of the fighter is to be boring, easy, simple. Now you're adding complexity to it, you know, so but I think it's a nice way to sort of dress up melee classes a bit. I would argue that they're not needed for something like a monk. Like my monk always has like 15 things to do in a round. I don't know that I need to, you know, also do it. But in theory, this system should be reliable enough that you could, you know, pretty easily in most cases uh, just throw that property onto what you're doing and it just does that you know as part of your description and so on of what your character does so it's probably okay but I have a number of caveats where I'd really like to see this in play at a table where you know two characters have these things like a monk and a fighter and how does that play out um, it reminds me of second edition right where you, there was a point in second edition around the kits era where you had all these uh, special things you could unlock about a specific monster and they could be quite formidable. One weapon would be wildly different than the other and some would be way better and so it just totally changed the balance of power around what items to choose, which was really interesting. That's a lot. Yeah. What do you think? I am very much in your camp on all of that. I think it's cool. Um, we did something at Ghostfire in our uh, player's guide with weapons. We gave certain weapons these traits where you could do special things with them. So it's not completely unique. It's been done before in different iterations of the game. And it's it goes along that same complexity line we were talking about with our last comment, right? Yes, it makes the game more complex. It makes a class that is generally one that's simpler to play, more complex. Mm. And there's no... There's no balance to if you choose not to use these things because you want to keep it simple. There's no, well, I, I get this instead, right? It's like the, the champion fighter, the complexity is reduced, but you get these things that are easy and possibly even comparable in strength to offset what you don't choose. Here, there's none of that. Uh, you know, it's like you could get the simple add to to every damage roll you make with a weapon uh, to offset all these other things that you could do, yeah. but they don't do that, uh, which I, you know, it's fine. And I, I just worry every time new things are added to the system and I'm going to use the S word system because is this system or is this content? <laughs> 
Uh, Are you saying all these things to be, just to make me laugh? I mean, come on. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, it, it is part of the system, but it is only unlocked with the content that comes to us from a class, apparently. Mm-hmm. So, I or want two few, bottles of wine and an evening with Jeremy Crawford, where we talk about content versus system. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an interesting concept, and I, I I'm not trying to pick on anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it just it's been on my mind for forever. <laughs> Let's but, safely call know, this system this weapons thing because you know, like here, yeah. here's a random thought to just interject. But the, the kind of thing that that matters, right? Is like in D and D, there's in most editions this huge love affair with swords, and we get it right mm-hmm. thematically. But the yeah. long sword is so much better in so many ways. The great sword is so much better in so many ways. And all you've got to do is look at the magic items to know it. Because there are all these magic items that literally only come in longsword and greatsword and or sword, you know, and, and those are the ones you want damage wise and whatever. And so like everybody just uses that. Not everybody, but most players will use those things and the magic system rewards you. And now maybe we have a reason why you want something else, but then you're going to get a flaming longsword and... You know, I have no problem as a DM changing that, but but a lot of people do. And and so, you know, I'd like to once again call for D&D to stop assigning magic items to a specific weapon type. Right. And, and embrace mm-hmm. all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that's an example true. of the extension of that system. Right. Like rules like this right. beg for monster or uh, magic items that are flexible in this way. Right. And not just the flex property. Uh, <laughs> right. But, so we talked before about you know, Wizards of the Coast needing, needing to decide what they want to do with the game. And this tells us that they want a more complex game. Mm-hmm. They want people to be have to make these, hard, these choices, not only what weapon to use, but what property to use along with the weapon. And then when to use that special property, if at all, and what's the best property to use, what will do the most good for their party. I'm fine with all that. If that's what you want your game to be. Now, that's not the choice I would make, but if that's the choice you want to make, this is a this is a definitely a good way to do it. But now you have to take those steps down the road to look at each one of these things and say, have we worded this in a way that cannot be absolutely broken when put with something else that we might not be expecting people to make the connection with? And, and the kind of thing that to just to drive this home, like level one fighter, right? In this playtest packet, you get your fighting style. That's mm-hmm. already a big sort of like, whoa, where am I going? But, but you know, it's, it makes a little sense. But OK, I'm going to choose my fighting style. Then I'm going to get second win, so I've got to understand what those rules are. And if you run new player tables, they love using it, but forget it. <laughs> you have to remind mm-hmm. them of this. And then weapon mastery, choose three kinds of simpler martial weapons that give yeah. you this. And every long rest, you can change that up, right? Mm-hmm. And that is that kind of thing. It's, it's like the druid looking up forms or this polymorph spell. Like Now you've got to go off and read through the entire weapon table and decide which three you're getting. But oh, by the way, you don't have the money to buy all these weapons. So you're really choosing three, but taking one. And and it's just, you know, it's just like so much work. And at the end of all this work that a new player has to do, are we better off? Are we having more fun? Maybe, probably a bit, but 
Is it worth that level of work? And, you know, so then maybe the game's not for new players, to which I go, have we thought about the business case? <laughs> yep. Because yeah. the making money, the reaching a billion dollar brand, you know, ridiculousness is predicated on an enormous audience. There's no other way around it, right? A, core, a huge audience has to be a part of this. So you've got to have lots of new players. That should be front and center on the list of things you're trying to achieve. Um, Versus what I might want, right? I think this is this is great. Like for me, love it. Can't wait to play a fighter with weapon mastery. But I'm not your mm -hmm. typical player by any stretch yeah. of the imagination, right? Yeah, including negative things. Yes, I have to take a slight diversion here. Please. Yesterday, I played again with my first edition friends, mm -hmm. uh, and we leveled. So we had two players who got to pick a fighting style. And I'm playing the cleric, so I'm not, and I'm trying not to tell them what to do or how to, I'm going to let the DM handle that. I'm not the DM. So they got to choose fighting styles. And of all the fighting styles, we have a paladin and a ranger, both pick choosing fighting styles. Of all the fighting styles that there is to choose from, they both took the same one, blind fighting. I don't think I've ever seen a situation where that would necessarily come in handy on a regular basis, right? Archery, absolutely, sure. right? The paladin, the you know, the defensive one, oh yeah, uh, all you know, all of these, they both took mm. blind fighting, cool. and I'm trying to, mm -hmm. I'm I'm hoping that at some point in our adventuring career, they get a chance to use that, <laughs> but I'm not holding my breath. Grimlock uh, encounter around the corner. Can't wait. Right. Exactly. And, and you know, they're not an expert with this no. th these rules. So what how would they know? That just seems like it's a good idea, right? Yeah. We're gonna and, be in the dark at some point. And that's the kind of thing the game used to be full of that, right? Like um third edition with rangers picking uh your your favorite enemy, right? Like mm -hmm. but I was playing in the living Greyhawk Jeff campaign where we're fighting giants. So my bonus of fighting giants came up constantly and it was awesome, mm -hmm. right? But the game doesn't intend for that. But here I am right. <laughs> benefiting. And that's the kind of thing like yep. blindsight might never come up or it might be the biggest thing ever because here we are in this underdark campaign and nobody has dark vision for whatever reason. But most mm -hmm. gaming groups would have very little reason to use that one. And they both yep. chose it. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So... Funny story. Anyway, so let's talk about each of these, or at least the highlights yeah. of these uh, properties. First is cleave. You hit a creature with a melee attack. You can make an attack roll with the weapon against a second creature within five feet of the first that is also within your reach. On a hit, the, the second creature takes the weapon's damage, but don't add your ability modifier to that damage unless the modifier is negative, and you can make this uh, extra attack only once per turn. Uh, so it's a second attack for free. You don't need to use your bonus action to do it. And, you know, it comes up in a, in a, a, not always. You're not always going to have two enemies right next to each other within your reach. It wasn't second attack does leave when you kill a creature you could continue on? Yes. Yeah, yes. so... so what I liked about that version is that it didn't eat up time every single turn. It was sort of this juicy mm -hmm. extra bit. And of course it comes up less often, but to me, that's sort of the point where you are not, um, 
Like this is just, I love the tactical of it right now. You want to, it almost begs for a grid or, or at least a lot of description where you say, okay, I want to stand next to these two foes. But then it, yeah, it might be all the time or very often that you're now making, taking up more time on your turn. And maybe that's good. Maybe it's not. Yeah. And the second attack, while it doesn't add your ability damage modifier, but there's no other limiters on it. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, rage damage. You want to smite on that second attack? Mm-hmm. Sounds good. You kill the first person, you go on to the second person, maybe you move your hunter's mark and you can attack that second person. You got mm-hmm. green flame blade going? Uh, does that? Mm-hmm. that The spell lasts one round. Uh, so if you attack the first, when you go into the second... Does that allow you to use Green Flame Blade again to damage the? Because Green Flame Blade lets you do some damage to the on an attack, but I'd have to. I think there's a limit on that based on the wording of it. But I'd have to look it up, which is (laughs) speaks to when I looked. When I looked, I didn't see. You know, it said like the attack, but is this attack the same? Right. It. I. This. The the spell is it lasts for one round. That was very specific. Uh, so right, these are the questions that then come up. Yeah, what can you do? What else happens when you do this? How else can it be used? And everything that you write from now on has to come back and ask, "Hmm, can this will, would this work with Cleveland? Would that be unbalancing in some way?" Yeah. Uh, flex. Now compared to the other one, flex seems like practically nothing. When you hit with a melee attack using this weapon, you deal versatile damage, even if you're wielding it with one hand. So some weapons, it's a D8 in one hand and a D10 in two hands, right? So even though you're using it in one hand, you can do one, basically one extra point, maybe two extra points Mm -hmm. per attack. Is that worth all the rules that go into <laughs> figuring out to use that weapon and make that choice. Yeah, you can do it every time, but what's your player is, type? Is your player type optimizer or you know instigator actor? <laughs> yeah. I, I just I, I don't know. Mm. Uh and, and I, I'm not I'm not opposed to it. It just I'm wondering. Uh Grays is the next one. If you if your attack uh, if you attack if your attack roll with this weapon misses, you can deal damage to that creature equal to the ability modifier used to make the attack roll. This damage is the same type dealt by the weapon, and the damage can't be increased in any way other than increasing the ability modifier. All right. So, what does the damage can't be increased in any way actually mean? Does it mean that? The damage that that weapon does can't be increased, but if there's something going on where if a creature takes damage, they take more damage, or you know something like that, does that count? Right, like because a good that's not part of the attack. Vulnerable with that, like they're vulnerable bludgeoning, and you do bludgeoning. Yeah. if it's the same type, right? right? Is yeah. is that? 
My the, guess is that you that, can't, yeah. you know, what they what they are trying to say here is that extra piece of damage that's equal to your ability score, you cannot increase that probably based on anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just the ability modifier. It seems to be what they're saying. Uh, well, that's why they said the, other than increasing the ability modifier, but they will need to parse that very carefully to avoid right, right. endless discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Right. If if there's if there's a, a a spell, if there's an effect that says if this creature takes damage, it also blank blank blank. Yeah. So that has nothing to do with this attack. That has to do with the creature being damaged, which is separate from the attack. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's a yeah. It needs to be clarified. Uh, any any thoughts? No, no, it's fine. You want to take the next one? Sure. Uh, Nick, when you make the extra attack of the light property, you can make it as part of the attack action instead of as a bonus action. You can still make this, this extra attack only once per turn. So this is your your the, the current state of where things are with uh, using a light weapon to get an extra attack off of it. And so they're letting you now do that through the Nick property that it can do it as part of the attack action does need up your bonus, which is only to use your bonus for whatever your class would normally do. So if I'm a monk fighter, I have a dagger in each hand. I can make a dagger attack with my main hand, then a second dagger attack as part of that Nick thing, and then my bonus action to make an unarmed attack with my feet, right, as, as or a headbutt or whatever, uh, that seems perfectly reasonable. Right. You right. just only get Nick once per turn. Okay. But you can still use that bonus action For to other... make attacks. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. Yeah, so okay. it's basically Nick just lets you do that. Dag- it gives you an extra dagger attack, right? That That is part mm-hmm. of your attack action. All right, cool. Instead of uh, the, push. Yeah, feeding up the bonus. Yeah. Yep. Push. If you hit a creature with this weapon, you can push the creature... Up to 10 feet away from you, uh, if it was no more than one size larger than you. So I can see this being very, very useful in we're standing on a cliff, we're standing next to lava, we're standing next to uh, right a cloud of daggers spell. Yeah, and this is one of these things where I watch for because 4E had a lot of push and move. Mm-hmm. And, and as a result, it had to be super, super careful uh, that it wasn't abused. And so you had all these kinds of rules for when you push someone into damaging terrain or off an edge or something. And that really doesn't exist in 5e. So if we start doing it all the time, or you know, if we start how it interacts with things like damaging zones and things like that, it's going to be a little interesting whether they create, whether they paint themselves into a corner with something like this. And what they've been very careful to do so far with 5th edition is avoid small creatures having a lot of penalties in relation to medium-sized creatures. Mm -hmm. And what this does is it says, well, medium creatures could push large creatures, but small creatures can't push large creatures. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that adds that little bit of discrepancy between those sizes back. Also, a heavy crossbow has the push property. And so I'm trying to figure out why a small creature 
using a heavy crossbow with the push property would have any harder time pushing a creature mm -hmm. than a medium-sized creature. And while it's super cinematic and we love it in movies, uh, weapons don't push people backwards like this. Projectile weapons, guns, whatever is like, that's not a thing that physics supports. Uh, XKCD's What If did a great series on this. Um, so it's yeah. fun, but <laughs> not logical. Yep. Uh, Sap. If you hit a creature with this weapon, that creature has disadvantage on its next attack roll before the start of your next turn. Uh, Oof. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I... Mm. I I like DMs who are fans of the players, but I also understand that DMs like to roll dice and sometimes succeed. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. and and having disadvantage, it's already hard enough to hit players a lot, uh, and so to have disadvantage on your first attack roll, and if that's the only attack roll you get, that's tough. And if you have a hard enough time hitting already with all the things that characters can do, uh, it's just, it's a little, it can be a little non-fun for certain types of, of DMs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I don't uh, like nerfing monsters. I just yeah. prefer to not see, unless it's really, you know, every now and then, right? The big thing, the big moment you want to do that. Cool. But I don't love it as happening all the time. No. Uh, slow. If you hit a creature with this weapon and deal damage to the creature, you can reduce its speed by 10 feet until the start of your next turn. If you hit the creature more than once with this property, the speed reduction doesn't exceed 10 feet. Down with it. So Love you it. can't. Yep. That's cool. Yep. Speed reduction uh, is the thing that I think is totally fun tactics. It does, you know. Yep. It's, it's all fair. Yep. Topple. If you hit a creature with this weapon, you can force the creature to make a constitution saving throw with a DC equal to 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus the ability modifier used to make the attack roll. On a failed save, the creature has the prone condition. A few things. Well, at least there's a saving throw here. Uh, so that's something. But, wow, that's a big deal mm -hmm. for... Everybody gets advantage for the rest of the round oh, yeah, the until that goes. creature acts again. And I can totally see the character who's going right after the bad, uh, you know, the bad guy saying, well, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to delay or not delay. I'm going to ready my action. So when uh, it acts, uh, I right after it acts, I hit it. And now it doesn't start until a full round of everybody beating on it. It's just too. It's just too strong, and there's no size limitation. So you, you know, you're a small creature, and you hit that uh, colossal dragon. Yeah, that's a uh, that's something I'm going to have to waste my. Uh, what do you call it when you automatically succeed on a save? yeah your legendary yeah your legendary uh, save uh yeah to to avoid that happening to you. So that's that's big. Yeah. Uh, yeah, last one I, is Vax. Oh, I, I just the, just it's this point where I start going like, wait a minute, this stuff's going to be happening every round for mm -hmm. the rest of the campaign. And I go, mm -hmm. oh, that's a bit that's a bit much. I don't really want 
every attack that the Maul wielder does to topple my target all campaign long. Oof. Yeah, just in terms of the rolling the saving throws. Oh, gosh, my, that's Carpal Tunnel right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the last one is Vax. If you hit a creature with this weapon and deal damage to the creature, you have advantage on your next attack roll against that creature before the end of your turn. Uh, before the end of your next turn. I mean, it's it's the same thing, right? It's, it's you at least hit, just one person. You, you, you have, yeah. <laughs> you have advantage on your next yeah. attack roll. So you know, Rogue is always going to have advantage. Uh, and on at least their first attack, it's just a yeah, it's it's a thing. Mm. The last thing in this section was they talked about the priest pack and the net as equipment, and this the net. I was just like, what? So net is now equipment, so it's not a weapon, so anyone can use it. Uh, when you take the attack action, you can replace one of your attacks. With the throw of a net at a creature within 15 feet of you. The target must succeed on a dexterity saving throw equal to 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus your dex modifier. And as far as I could tell, everyone is proficient with the net. I didn't see anything say otherwise. Maybe I missed it. Was everybody not proficient? But then they wouldn't have mentioned this. Huh. But that, that's that's why I'm saying it. doesn't. Yeah. I don't think it says. So in, if you are hit by this net... You are restrained. Now, did they change the restraint condition or still does it still mean you are grappled, you are at disadvantage to hit, and right. you are at advantage to be hit? So again, the monster acts, the next person throws the net on them. Mm-hmm. They might make that dexterity saving throw, but if you're if everyone's proficient yeah. with it, uh you don't even have to roll an attack roll. It is just they have to try to dodge out of the way. So at first level, uh, assuming that you have any sort of dex modifier, say you have a plus two, you're looking at a DC 12. Most monsters, that's a 50-50 shot at best of escaping your net or not. And then they are restrained. So everyone has advantage to hit them. If they choose not to escape, they have disadvantage to hit someone else. Mm -hmm. And if they try to escape, they have to use their action to make a DC 10 athletics check to escape, which for some creatures is going to be not, you know, not a huge deal. But for a lot of creatures, you're still looking at a 50-50 shot of even being able to escape. Yeah. So you have to waste an action destroying it, which most creatures will be able to do because it only has five hit points. And because right. it's not a thrown weapon, you can't draw it for free. So the one good thing is that your character who chooses to come into the battle with a net ready in hand gets to do this trick once, unless they... Well, I guess they could be just drawing things as their free action. But so I was thinking you mm-hmm. could have the skirt of nets, and I guess that's still possible. I have a skirt of nets, and I pull a net. And I chuck it at you. Yeah, so you could do it every round and just constantly mm-hmm. restrain a thing as one of your attacks, which for a lot right. of characters would be worth it. Totally worth it. On, um, you know, important monsters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's not my you, favorite. It, 
And if you have a high dexterity and you're the the thrower, that makes the that uh, and it only it takes one. If you have multiple attacks, it only takes one attack. So as a rogue, if you get two attacks, you could still throw this, get your sneak attack, mm-hmm. and let everyone else do their thing as well. And they're not prone. So even those ranged combatants don't have disadvantage. Like that's the one thing prone does is it gives disadvantage to those ranged attackers. Not this. This is restrained. So everybody gets advantage. So, you know, things I like overall from this weapon master, I think it's fun concept to want to play with the excitement of a subsystem like this. It clearly energized people hearing about it. Um, so I think that there, there is, this is ground that's worth exploring. It can be really fun, but I'd want to see it played enough to know whether it's fun from the, from the perspective of, of the, of the game, the DM, and as compared to the beauty of the simplicity of the 2014 player's handbook, because I think one of the things that when you look at 2014, it often looks a little bit boring. And then when you played it, you realize that the boring part of it opened up a lot of creativity Mm -hmm. and resulted in really neat things happening at the table. And especially as I ran for lots of new players um, and and, and experienced players as well, the space that was now available from not having, you know, your quickened action or your uh, swift action or any of these things that we've had in various editions became headspace for role-playing for fun ideas and i think that's one of the real strengths of 5e if we fill everything with off-turn actions bonus actions extra riders to your thing suddenly everyone's turn becomes huge right mm-hmm. yeah i i'm right there with you and so we will see where this trend continues or not mm-hmm. going forward uh, more news. D&D Honor Among Thieves, the movie, is now available digitally on demand or for purchase through Paramount. Uh, it's also offered through some car- cable carriers or streaming services that partner with Paramount. Last I checked, it was at over $200 million, um, So it's made its own money plus another 25 or so percent. And uh, so we'll we'll call that good. And now you can get it in the privacy of your own home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've heard from the Diana Jones Award. They have announced the Emerging Designer Program winners. There are four rising designers that they have announced and given this award, including Anthony Joyce Rivera, Aaron Roberts, Kayla Dice, and Sen HHS. And if you go search for the Diana Jones Award, you can read more about each of these emerging and rising designers there. Yeah, great to see. Um, Looks like four awesome people. Uh, Really happy for them. I'm glad Diana Jones is doing this. It's a really nice, very new program that they're doing. Great to see. Mm -hmm. Yep. From the good news of the Diana Jones Award to the sad news of Keith Baker Presents closing its doors. So Keith Baker, as probably you know, is the creator of the original Eberron setting. He's been working with Keith Baker Presents to publish Eberron-flavored products. 
they're sold on the DMs Guild because the DMs Guild allows the Eberron setting to be written for. And they've they've had four very successful products, uh, two of them Adamantine and two Mithril bestsellers. They're uh, at number one and five on the most popular DM Guild banners. Uh, so that's big news. But wait a However, minute. I'm, Clearly they're yeah. hugely successful, Sean. How could they be closing their doors? How... how uh, well, on January 30th, the company said that they will be closing their doors. Another company called Visionary Production and Design will be overseeing the previous works and also publishing the final book called Frontiers of Eberron Quickstone. Keith Baker will be turning his focus on other works. So It's almost as if giving 50% of all your revenue is a problem, even for those folks that seem to be hugely successful on the platform. And maybe the inability to kickstart, crowdfund mm -hmm. in any way, is a deal breaker when you're trying to actually grow. And that's something that's very important. I hope that what you know comes out of this is, uh, I hope this is a, a, something that Wizards will really listen to carefully when it comes to any other marketplace visions they have, like for D&D Beyond or the virtual tabletop, that when you close things off and make it so it's only on one platform, even your best names will have trouble making it really work. Yep. It's a tough industry, and you know, closing things down definitely makes it tougher. But there are some Kickstarters coming, speaking of Kickstarters, either coming or already out there. There is the Deck of Player Safety from Tom Nolan, which provides a simple set of cards that can be used by players at the start of a session to signal a topic to exclude from the gaming session. Yeah, um, you I, want to take I, the next one? Oh, yeah, and I just want to say I like this concept. Um, it hasn't funded yet, so it could use your help. But it um, it's nice because it's at the beginning of the session before you start play rather than an X card that's during play. And it's done in an anonymous way from a deck of cards choosing topics that you Ooh. want to, to avoid. And I thought that was a really neat concept. Uh, the next one is Limitless Champions, Disabled D&D 5e NPC Cards and Miniatures by Dale Critchley and Wormworks Publishing, bringing representation of disabled people through miniatures and NPC stat block cards. Some really cool minis in there uh, featuring all kinds of different uh, accessibility uh, uh, characters that have accessibility issues and making them look totally awesome in miniature and card form. So well worth it. Mm -hmm. We have Amazing Encounters and Quests from the Brazil-based Brazil CZRPG. This combines maps and fun encounters into a single product that you can use to delight and terrify your players. Empty Black's Emporium of Wonders, 400 of the most imaginative and useful magic items ever devised for 5e. Uh, Empty Black sometimes treats Sean and I with and, and other folks with uh, examples of these as he's been working on them. So we've seen a few of the really cool ideas. So as anything that MT Black does, it's awesome. Check it out, the Emporium of Wonders. Yep. And finally, this isn't an RPG game, but it's a board game, RPG game, sort of. It's Clank, Legacy 2, Acquisitions Incorporated, Darkest Magic. So you know more about Clank than I do. So give, give us the rundown. Yeah, Clank is a, there's a whole bunch of Clank games. And the basic concept is going to the dungeon, uh, trying to gain loot. Uh, but there's, you know, only so long you can go because a dragon will wake and breathe fire on you and possibly kill you. 
Uh, and that's a fun mechanic just on its own. But they made this legacy format for Acquisitions Incorporated, the first one. It's the best board game legacy experience my family has ever had. Board game experience, period. Like, just we had so much fun playing through that. I could not recommend it more strongly as a board game experience. If you can handle that legacy format where, you know, you're playing and every time you play, you get through the story. And I think it's something like 10 to 12 games, something like that, and then you're done with it. But it is so good. Well, well worth it. So now they're crowdfunding part two. I am, you know, immediately in. Can't wait to have it. And, uh, look forward to playing this so i hope it raises a ton so they add more and more to it because it was really just such a fun the writing of it the story the way the map changed all of it really great and that is our news for this week and now let's get on to our main topic here on mastering dungeons this week we are going to look at the first chapter of the fifth edition 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, we're doing this as part of a sort of cycle of, of topics where we're interviewing folks. We're talking about other role-playing games, interspersing some other content. And this Dungeon Master's Guide review is one of those co- pieces of content we're, we're interspersing because it's been a it's been a topic on everyone's mind with the announcement that. Uh, Chris Perkins is already working on the 2024 version of the 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide. So we wanted to sort of look at what's already there and then figure out what we want to see in the next version. Yeah, absolutely. Last time, yeah, last time we talked about the introduction and that spurred a lot of conversation, not only between Teos and myself, but with uh, lots of folks online. So we're going to get into uh, the first chapter. Last week, we talked about how how the the introduction promised that it is good to be the DM. Didn't tell us quite why, but it said it it was. Uh, It said that it assumed that you as the DM would know how to play, recommended the starter set. It separates the book into three sections. The master of worlds, the master of adventures, and the master of rules in that order, uh, surprisingly. Uh, So we asked, how would you teach a DM to take on this beast that is running D&D? And then it threw in the last uh, part about knowing your players. So it described different kinds of players, types like the actor, the explorer, the instigator, the fighter, the optimizer, the problem solver, and the storyteller. For each type, it gave a little background on how to best keep them engaged during a game. So Which, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's so interesting to tack that in sort of at the end. Um, this is this is a section that has shown up like in fourth edition and third edition, you know, towards the front of the DMG. So that part's normal, but it just feels tacked on to the intro. Oh, by the way, also know your players. Now build your world. You know, like it was it's a strange yeah strange placement and we'll talk about that more but yeah so now yep. chapter one and and i love to you know i've spent I've, I've looked at this book like i don't know how many times in the last couple of weeks as we're thinking about this show trying to look at this through different lenses and it's really very fascinating because here it goes and it says your world is the setting for your campaign the place where adventures happen even if you use an existing setting such as the forgotten realms It becomes yours as you set your adventures there, create characters to inhabit it, 
and make changes to it over the course of your campaign. This chapter is all about building your world and then creating a campaign to take place in it. And I go, okay, that's cool. That's really inspirational. Is that what this should start with? Mm -hmm. And the concepts that they start with are very, very important once you understand how the game works. But until you know how the game works, this sort of content can be a little bit fuzzy. It can it can come across to you and you can understand it, but you can't understand what it means to your game until you know about your game. Right, because D&D is not like anything else. And so if you've never run a game or have only run a couple of sessions, are you really just ready to start world building? And, and, you know, to some extent, like, I, you know, maybe a lot of us who started back in the day, like I did that, right? Like I would, a DM ran a game and I barely understood what was going on. And then they lent me a book and I started dreaming up my world. But that world was terrible. <laughs> like it was really bad. And, uh, and, and, and I don't know that this information would have helped me make a better world because the problem isn't sort of the instruction. It's where your brain is in the process and whether you can handle it, right? Yeah. Yeah, they do a good job, actually, of saying, here are five things that we assume about our worlds, mm-hmm. fantasy world, and the Forgotten Realms being the big example of that. And those five things are the gods oversee the world. Much of the world is untamed. The world is ancient. Conflict shaped the world's history. And the world is magical. Mm-hmm. So those five things. And so it's good to know that this is the default for how the how the world works. Uh, but unless you go into further detail about how the rules deal with the fact that gods oversee it, how the rules deal with much of the world being untamed and ancient and shaped by conflict and magical, then it doesn't mean a lot in terms of being a game master who's sitting down in front of a bunch of players. And it's cool to say you switch any of those toggles on or off. It changes Mm -hmm. the stories that you tell. Very true. If there are no gods, if the world is not untamed, but totally known, if the world is new instead of ancient, it changes the stories that you tell. But again, it doesn't really mean much in terms of gameplay at that point that point yeah and and even if you were to like one of the things i have to ask myself is okay let's say that i just use this like i just go in and i go okay i understand the core assumptions now i go in and i customize them to do what i want you know so maybe i say oh the world is not a magical place it's mundane and the world is new and and i go through this and then i go to the next pieces we'll talk about you know at the end of it That might work in in terms of creating an interesting thing and a thought provoking thing, but I don't know that it's like a ready to use thing. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in that the this is there's a lot of awesome thinking going on here that that totally stimulates me. Like I think everybody should read this. This is all useful stuff to understand about worlds, but at the end of it, I don't know that you get a great world. 
because it's almost trying to do so much. And, and systems I've seen that do world building well often give you very specific pointed bits that you do things with. And that framework becomes a thing that you can run games off of. And this doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. It's a little too encyclopedic for my taste. And I, it made me wonder, should all of this be in a world building guide, the type of product we saw in like second edition and third edition and not here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think? And, and I, I, I agree. I think that if you are going to be a DM who does the full range of DM things from running a really fun game in front of your players at the table to building an amazing and rich and deep and fun world, you have to go back and forth. Mm. You have to, if if the scale is zero being right at the table in front of players and 10 being the highest world concepts, you have to go from zero to 10 to 10 to zero to nine to one to eight to two. As you're building, you have to build in both directions. Mm. And the direction that I would start in is at zero rather than at 10 Mm -hmm. because zero is going to be your interfacing with the players where the players are playing the game and hopefully having fun. And you are facilitating that fun by putting the important things to the players in front of the players, the players, when they sit down to play their first adventure are not going to ask, is the world ancient or is it new? They're Mm -hmm. not going to say, did conflict shape the world's history or did it not? They're going to say, why are we here and what are we going to do? Yeah. What can I order from the tavern? And right. that's one of the things I think that I've heard as a common criticism. We heard this on our Discord a lot, that this advice they're giving, you don't see it in any of their published products. Mm-hmm. Right? None of the published right. products are just giving us all these details and all this. It tends, right? Instead, it's like, hey, you got off the boat and, and chult. Here's what's going down. Get going, right? Mm-hmm. Like, jump into it. You are in the underdark, and here's, here's what you need to do right now. And the larger world unfolds as you go and is often not even that big, right? It's fairly limited in, in scope, um, which is a lot more manageable for a player. And, and so maybe we should be teaching that sort of manageable level. I personally, mm-hmm. I'd like to see, I think this is all great stuff, but I think it would be great to have a world building product or a section at the mm-hmm. back that addresses this. You know, a lot of this type of thing, if we look at the fourth edition DMG, the 4E DMG takes all this stuff and puts it in, in the back and focuses on 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 the now on the encounter on the players on understanding table dynamics and pacing and things like that yeah for if i was doing world building workshops or classes i would have a template that could be filled in and with headers and questions that lead to answers that you could fill in those headers yes and get that framework get that outline get the help creating that and then use the questions to help the DMs understand what their answers to those questions are going to do for their game. Yeah. And, and that, you know, what you, I think the trap that we used to fall into a lot in like second edition days, first edition days is where we would over plan the world in to such a degree that you don't even know how to impart it on your players. And so that kind of approach of like a fill in the blanks, and now get into the encounter. 
it, you know, get into your first gaming session. Don't overthink all those things. You can put more, hang more off of that framework later, get a very loose framework and let's get going with play would to me be better advice than this level of depth, right? Because you can yeah. run all this stuff and then you're, you spend all this time on these, this first chapter and then you go to run your first encounter and it bombs and you lose your players. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And having a high level vision for your world is, is helpful. Having those themes, having a an elevator pitch for your world so you can constantly go back as you create things at the lowest zero level on my scale. As you create the taverns, as you create the NPCs, you can say, okay, this is a world where I'll use Aurora from, from uh, mm-hmm. Ghost Fire Gaming as an example, right? This is a world where the social structure was built around dragons being the leaders and setting up societies. Once they collapse, what happens? And now I can go into my at the encounter level, right? At the local level, at the bottom up level, where I'm down here and creating the the nitty-gritty of what the characters are interacting with. I know that okay, there's a sense of paranoia because dragons could ravage you at any point. Uh so I'm going to constantly be thinking of that. But I'm going to be putting that effort into what the NPCs are and where the characters might interact with the world rather than thinking of the world only. And to add to that, you know, when when you're running, if you teach people how to do bottom up, that supports, that encourages you also to be a better DM uh, Mm -hmm. and to develop great skills. And those are things that are tools and techniques and approaches that are very different than encyclopedic, right? So one thing is, if we say, okay, like there's a section on factions, right? So we could list all our factions up front and a bunch of them might never come up or we might find ourselves trying to figure out how to fit them in and play in ways that are being shoehorned and don't quite fit. But if instead someone talks to the uh, an NPC and we think to ourselves as a technique, when they talk to an NPC, ask yourself these three questions about, about an NPC. I'm making this up, right? And one of them could be yeah. to what faction or you know, group do they belong? You know, how do they fit into the large world? And that's where improvising, we might learn to say, hey, they are a member of the blah, blah, blah guild. So mm-hmm. this is what that guild wants. And we're just making notes as we go, right? Learning those kinds of skills will get you a lot further in life than this sort of encyclopedic pre-planning, which doesn't have anything right. to do with the action at the table. And, mm-hmm. and so if this advice were based off the action at the table and start at the ground zero, like you're talking about, that would lead you right. and, you know, put DMs in a better place, right? Yeah, and, and it does exactly what you say. It It's world building. It's still world building. It's just your world building from the important parts, from the specific to the general, rather than from the general trying to get down to the specific. Yeah, and then you can have advice that says things like, well, you know, so you made a call that the tavern keeper is the member of the blah, blah, blah guild, and now the session's over, and you got to write this down and and think, did I say anything that really doesn't make sense? Because if it doesn't, I can explain that out, right? So troubleshooting, like, well, this guy got a special exemption and that's their story, right? That's why they're a part of this guild, even though I think actually the guild should be for other people that aren't tavern keepers. You can you can do that. You can address that at the end. And that's part of your process that, you know, obsession recap and, and right world building that comes yeah. at the end of a session to make the notes of what NPC names you used and what things you came up with and. Yeah. 
So there are a lot of interesting pieces in this uh, section that, I, again, I think people should read, you know, thinking through how the gods work, how to decide when you're putting together a map of a campaign, you know, how different ideas and settlements. And actually, interestingly, a lot of this stuff is pulled out of the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Guide. For all I know, it comes from the third as well. I didn't check. Um, but there's a lot of similarity stuff. It's just really about how this edition chooses to present it that I think is makes it less useful. Um, mm -hmm. The factions piece, I was curious whether this might get replaced by the patron system in Tasha's. Um, yeah. Especially since the factions as they're present here is based off of that original concept of like the Zentarum and the Emerald Enclave, Harpers, and that didn't even seem to work for D&D. &D. <laughs> you know, like yeah. They moved away from it, so... Yeah, it was it was funny. I, I went to the D and D movie to look at storytelling mm. to see how these filmmakers and film writers used these tools that were there to tell their story. And it was interesting because the second part of of this chapter is the gods. The gods weren't really mentioned in the D and D movie. Mm. There were no clerics. There was a paladin, but he was sort of mm -hmm. just the good guy. Yeah. And and uh hmm. so I was like, that that's interesting. I'm glad they did that. I'm glad they didn't get into the pantheons. Now they did use factions, mm -hmm. but the factions they used as sort of a shorthand, right? The Emerald Enclave was just it could have been and it could have been Greenpeace. Right. It could have been anyone. Uh so they really didn't delve too deeply. It, the, the the Lord's Alliance was the the mm -hmm. jailers, mm -hmm. uh, but you know they they're just they're the cops, yeah. and the Harpers are just right the the Good CIA. Yeah. Just... <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's really interesting to, to look at. Um, another thing that that I thought was interesting is they have a play style section that mm -hmm. feels like it's in the wrong chapter. Um, because we had that player styles piece that was shoved in at the end of the intro. Mm -hmm. And then we have, Hey, do you want to run hack and slash versus immersive storytelling after you've sort of worked on your campaign and your map and all that? And I'm like, Whoa, this is like, isn't that, that should be at the front of your process. Right. And, and this is the kind of stuff that I think the fourth edition dungeon master guide does really well is to talk you through things like, what do your players like? What do you like? How does that color? the very nitty gritty things we're about to talk about of, of running an encounter well, running NPCs well, right? Th that to me should be uh, the kind of thing that an actually an intro does well. Anything else? Yeah, I, I, no, I, I agree. I, I would switch all of this around and I would try it with the caveat that there is no perfect solution. Sure. You're going to get people who say, I already know how to do all of this stuff. Tell me how to build a world. I want to see, show me how an encounter, what an encounter looks like in this game and how I can put two encounters together to make a solid story and then three encounters together to make an adventure and then put two adventures together to make uh, an arc and then put arcs together to make a campaign. Yeah, I want to see it from that point of view because that's where we lose, I think, the most DMs. 
is not the idea section. It's the mm-hmm. carrying out the play at the table section. And as we've said many times, this hobby is going to succeed or fail on the back of game masters and dungeon masters being able to run games for the players that want to play. And so yeah. that's where I want to see it start. One last thought to me is that um, I know it eats up words, but I love those uh, sort of actual play readouts like we had in you know the AD&D Dungeon mm-hmm. Master's Guide, the Player's Handbook, things like that. I, I think that's always really good because it shows you what play looks like. Mm-hmm. And it breaks down how a DM answers those situations, right? You present this thing. The player asks these questions. Now you've got to adjudicate and respond. Here's what you pull from to give that answer. And, oh, now you make a note for later. Like, hey, they, you know, this thing I made up, I'm going to make a note of that. I'm behind my DM screen. And and we resolve that play, right? And that Because that's dungeon mastering, right? Mm-hmm. Present. Chaos comes back your way. You make a decision. We move forward, right? right? Like that's that's the uh, the awesome. And, and when you say like, why is it good to be DM? That's your answer too. It's right. good to be DM because you're facilitating this incredible experience. Here's what that looks like, mm-hmm. you know. And here are the things that you want to start with to consider how you're going to run, what kind of game you're going to run to understand your approach, your, your what you favor, what they favor, and then we want to get into tools, hands-on tools, right? Mm-hmm. And and that goes back to what we were saying uh, in in the news section, I think, which is I would love to see the designers sit and watch a brand new DM and brand new players playing this game. That would tell you more than anything what needs to be in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how they might look at like, uh, I would love to see a new DM um reading there's a part that says you know creating a campaign in this section and it's kind of like a mess around find out school of thought it's not really a process and i bet if you watched a, a person read this they you know you'd say cool what campaign are you running they'd be like i don't i don't know like i don't know what to do you know but if right. you look at something like mike shay's return of the lazy dungeon master and you read the section there that tells you how to create a campaign that is such a process that I think mm-hmm. any new player would go like, okay, here's what I'm thinking. And it might be like from the perspective that's a bit naive, but they could follow that process, right? And would feel like they could follow that process. And that's, that's this, right. this needs that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it needs some steps. Uh, any other thoughts on the chapter one of this Dungeon Master's Guide? No, I think I've said it. Okay. Well, I think I have said it too. I think that we're on the same page in that mm-hmm. this is good content. Yeah, yeah. It it can be massaged to be more useful, especially to new DMs, and might need to be after the section where you actually learn what a DM does at the table. So we will continue our look in Uh, forthcoming weeks about the other chapters in the Dungeon Master's Guide, including creating a multiverse, creating adventures, and much, much more. But I want to thank everybody out there for listening to us give our thoughts on all of this. And you 
and become a patron of the show, like our Masters of Dungeons who support us. We give a special shout out to our Master of Realms supporters in our show notes and our Masters of the Multiverse. Well, we're going to talk to them right now. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Andy Edmonds at nerdronomicon.com, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Chad Lynch, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, <laughs> Ross Sandberg, Krishna Sea Monkey, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you for being masters of this multiverse. Yeah, and thank you so much. And 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 for everybody who's on our Patreon, you uh, get the show notes. And our show notes for this episode have breakdowns of a lot of subparts of the Dungeon Master's Guide, which time-wise we did not get into, but you get to see that benefit in the show notes. If you're for sure. Yep. So thank you to listeners and our patrons. And if you would like to become a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash mastering D&D. And if you get a chance, you could also leave a review on Apple Podcast or whatever podcatcher you use. And you can also subscribe via YouTube to our YouTube channel to see these marvelous countenances each and every week. Teos, where can people find you on your social medias? Uh, find me at alphastream.org. Uh, just today, I released my latest success in RPG video, which is uh, all about the fan content policies and what you can and can't do with it. So that may be of interest to creators, especially those starting out or those who are looking for ways to kind of use cool content from other companies to do something neat, but not profit from it directly. All right. Where do we find um, you, Sean? We are also... We, we're on Mastodon. We are on Twitter before the whole place burns down. We are on YouTube, as we mentioned earlier. You can email us directly. You can go to our YouTube channel, uh, Mastering the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. We are all over the place. It's not too difficult to find us. And with that said, we are done with Chapter 1 of this Dungeon Master's Guide. What are we going to do now? I mean, we're going to cleave right into our next show. Mm -hmm. We're going to cleave our world as we build it. <laughs>